Hey, while we might not be as fast as those guys racing in the Tour de France, cyclists like you and me are always trying to boost our performance and aid our recovery. And that's where today's sponsor, MitoQ, comes in. Like everything else in our bodies, our mitochondria become less efficient as we age. From the age of 30 on, levels of a CoQ10 in the mitochondria can decline by 10% with each passing decade. This means that our body's natural resilience also declines, which can impact our training, our recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, stress, hormones, and even brain power. And this is why a new supplement called MitoQ is becoming so popular with endurance athletes. It helps the body better deal with intense training periods and then recover faster. Some athletes have even said they've improved their VO2 max, heart rate variability, and lactate thresholds. When you combine that with not needing as long to recover and being able to maintain more intense training cycles, you can see why MitoQ might help you achieve your performance gains. To learn more about the unique formula of MitoQ, to read some independent clinical trials and read some independent athlete testimonials, go to mitoq.com forward slash power up cycling. That's www.mitoq.com slash power up cycling. Thanks to MitoQ for sponsoring this episode of the Bell News Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a sleepy and lethargic Sunday afternoon here at the home offices in Boulder. This is it. This is our final Tour de France 2020 podcast. The race just finished up on the Champs-Élysées. I watched it from the safety and comfort of my own home. And uh, today's pod, we are going to break down all of the thrilling action of the last couple of days. The complete out of nowhere upending of GC that says uh, the the Toddy Bear Tade Pogacha sees control of the yellow jersey in a very spectacular way uh, in the final time trial, and what that means. We're also going to talk about um, just the tour in general, what the media restrictions were like, COVID nineteen, some wider, larger topics, and it's just going to be a two person pod this week. That's right. Um, I am joining up with my main buddy, my compadre, my amigo from his uh, home office, his man cave in Spain. It's Andy Hood. Andy, um, before we get to Pogacha and Roglic and Sam Bennett winning on the Champs-Élysées and all the other thrilling storylines that we need to get to, um, you uh, – Departed the Tour de France a couple days early. For the last three weeks, first of all, we should know we're, we're talking to TV's Andy Hood. That's right. T- television star Andy Hood, star of the NBC broadcast, Andy Hood. But Andy, take us through your um, your quick departure from the tour. There was some COVID. There was like a kind of a last minute decision and you went home. Yeah. Hi, Fred. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. We were, uh, you know, been watching uh, developments here in Spain, and uh, there were a lot of rumors going around about possible uh, quarantine, possible even closing the border. I mean, the cases here are getting, you know, just as bad as they were back in March, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And, um, you know, looking at what had happened uh, back in March, you know, it was just didn't really want to get caught out somewhere. And, uh, of course, you know, Nothing ever is going to happen at a time trial, right? So I figured after the Alps and uh, there wasn't much left and, and going up to Paris wasn't really in the, in the works for me anyway this year just for a variety of reasons. So uh, being better safe than sorry, I decided to cut loose uh, Friday and uh, got back home uh, yesterday afternoon just in time to watch uh, the miracle uh, in the Belfield. And um, – but then, uh, of course, actually Friday as well, we had our first COVID case in the press room. All of the Spanish uh, press contingent were sent home. A story, a story that's on Velo News. Um, kind of, uh, they didn't really actually tell anybody. Uh-huh. There's a lot of angry people in the press room right now because there was the first confirmed COVID case among the press corps was Friday, uh, the day that I left, uh, the Spanish journalist. And so they did, uh, you know, kind of uh, some contact tracing. So everyone that had close contact with this journalist had their credentials removed. Um, evidently, the tour decided that since all those people were asymptomatic, they would not have to go undergo uh, follow-up 
Kobe controls themselves. And so, but they're all told to leave the race uh, from the major Spanish dailies. From, you know, Spanish are very sociable. So all these people were having dinner together every night. I usually have dinner with them at some point during the tour myself, but this year I didn't. So luckily uh, I, I'm not on that list. But uh, from the Spanish dailies, from the wire service uh, and the TV, I mean, basically, I think there might have been a couple of other guys who, who were still there, but almost the entire Spanish press corps left the race Friday. And then uh, on Saturday in the time trial, uh, ASO did not tell anybody in the press room about all this stuff that had happened. And so now there are some very upset uh, people in the press room because the, the threat was, you know, if you get two or more kind of cases inside the press room, you know, according to their own rules, they would probably have to shut down the entire press room because this year's press room, like any tour, there's actually less people at the, at the at the tour this year. But of course, you know, we're all inside you know what it's like. You know, old uh, you know high school gymnasiums or ice rinks. Sometimes tents. Sometimes a big Congress hall. Sometimes a municipal building. Uh, you know, a gymnasium, whatever. But you know, there's several hundred people inside this working space, and a lot of people were kind of uneasy about that anyway. But you know, we had a face mask policy. They had some social distancing set up in the tables. Um, but this was the first case Friday, Saturday. They didn't tell anybody, and now uh, we wrote a story about it, so people know. <laughs> and uh, there's 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 a lot of un- unhappy journalists, uh, you know, a few unhappy journalists because they felt like that 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 they should have had the right to have at least known that this was going on, and they can make their own decisions without having been, uh, you know, just uh, uh, not not told at all. Yeah, bad move, ASO. Plus, I didn't realize hoodie that. Uh, the press corps was being treated similar to a pro cycling team with this two strikes in your out policy. So, you know, pro cycling team has 30 people and the press corps has 100 journalists. And what do you get two strikes? And you kick kick all of you guys out. You guys are just off the race, like sitting behind sitting at like a bus stop somewhere in France trying to get back to your respective countries. Is that how it would work? Yeah, I mean, actually, I don't think that was written uh, written down. So I don't think it was like the strict two strikes and you're out. But I know that if there were, you know, a handful of cases across different nationalities or different kinds of media, you know, that would be kind of a indicative of uh, of a larger spread. So uh, you know, ASO kind of dodged a bullet. You know, the tour's over. C'est la vie, man. You know, we'll see you next year. <laughs> well, you conveniently uh, bugged out before learning of that because I don't know how they would have treated you hoodie because yes you are American but you are also you're, you cross borders you're an international man and one of those international um, one of those nations is Spain so I don't know maybe they would have included you on the long list of guys to kick to the curb and leave at the bus stop but you bugged out man before the um, dare we say it the the biggest day of racing in Tour de France history since like the post-war tour, like the most, the most <laughs> Good timing, <huh>? unpredictable <laughs> stage of racing, uh, that being stage 20, the individual time trial up to La Planche de Belleville, which, you know, this time trial has been looming for, you know, for days and stages and weeks. And I've kind of always known, hey, yeah, there were, there's going to be that time trial, but Roglic's win seemed like such a foregone conclusion, and listeners of the podcast probably know that myself and Jens Vogt have been talking about Roglic as though he is the champion for the last few episodes because he seemed so bulletproof. And then something happens like this, and Pogachar is on the best day ever, and Roglic is on an okay day, but not a great day, and... The whole Tour de France gets thrown into a snow globe, and what we come out with is Tade Pogacar winning the Tour de France, um, 59 seconds ahead of Primoz Roglic. He put almost two minutes into Roglic in this individual time trial. Richie Porte jumps up from, I believe, fourth place, overtakes Miguel Angel Lopez to land on the podium in third. Congrats to Richie Porte. Career achievement there. Mika Landa takes a step up to get fourth, tying his best finish. Uh, Enric Mas, the up-and-coming talent of Spain affirms his position as an up-and-coming Tour de France talent with a fifth place, and you go down from there. But really, it's this Roglic-Pogacar battle being completely upended. And, I mean, Hoodie, what were you thinking as you watched this thing? What were the the thoughts that were going through your mind as you saw Roglic starting to lose time and Pogacar making up time? Yeah, it was it was an absolutely spectacular uh, final day. I mean, I have to say that I didn't actually miss anything by leaving early because talking to my colleagues there at the ground, I asked them. I said, 
you know, were you at, you know, where were you yesterday when I talked to them on Saturday about this? And uh, just to kind of see what I missed, you know, because like you want to be there, right? I mean, I, you know, there's nothing better than being there at these races. And so I was kind of feeling guilty yesterday. So I called out one of my colleagues. I'm like, hey, how was it, man? What was it like being there? He goes, oh, no, mate. You know, we were in a press room uh, 10Ks away because there was, there was no, there was no mix zone because normally they had a mix zone at the start every day. No mix zone, so you couldn't talk to any writers before because the top was so small and narrow. No media was allowed to the top, so it was a completely like a virtual uh, video game for even the people that were there. So you know, we didn't miss anything that uh, no one else who was there met, got. So, but yeah, so watching watching from my couch or watching from the press room was kind of the same experience. But it was, uh, yeah, just you know, it was just mind-boggling to see. Um, you know, there were a couple of moments there where you could just kind of see things falling apart, right? There was that moment because, you know, when you're on these time trials, individual time trials, it's kind of hard to see how fast they're going. And then finally when Pogachar caught his two-minute man, uh, Lopez, it was kind of on a – it was kind of like coming over like a little rise, you know, going in. So it was – you know, it was a part of the race where he would be carrying some speed. But the how fast Pogachar just absolutely flew past Lopez. I was like, wow, he is really flying. This was early on in the race where the gap was, you know, already clawed back 10, 12, 15 seconds. And you're thinking, okay, Rogoc, you know, they have it all timed out and they're little, you know, they've dissected the entire route and they're figuring out their time markers they have to hit. So you just think, okay, Rogoc has nothing to lose, or excuse me, Pogatar has nothing to lose. So he's just going all in and he's going to blow up. And then Roglic, once he hits that final ramp, is going to turn on the turbos and save the yellow jersey. But man, it just didn't happen that way, did it? No, it didn't. Um, and, and it was it was two things. First of all, Pogacar – look, it's, it's Pogacar. If we say Pogacar, sorry, you know, we're trying. We're all trying. Pogacar. Um, Pogacar was obviously on an amazing day. Apparently, he raced without a bike computer or a power meter, just did the whole thing on feel, old school style, which is cool to see. Um, so he's obviously on just an amazing day, uncorks one. And Roglic, you could tell when he started climbing the hill. He did a bike change, changed from a TT bike onto a road bike. And that usual snap he has, that high cadence whirring, you know, he just whirs his legs around so fast, like we saw up to Puy Marie on stage 13. He didn't have that, you know? He was like kind of pushing a big gear and getting out of the saddle and in the saddle and out of the saddle and really looking for his good position. And um, he just did, just did not look good. I know a lot of people pointed out that his uh, TT helmet then sort of became askew on the top of his head and he looked like a Cat 5 in like your local um, weekend crit wearing a TT helmet, like totally cockeyed on his head. And I, I mean, I'm not, as I watched this thing happen, I, I had to turn – I turned the live stream off for a little while. I didn't realize it. But I apparently was a huge Roglic fan going into – I like apparently I really wanted him to win. And when I saw him taken on water like that, I didn't expect to have the emotional reaction that I had. But for a moment there, it was like it was like watching the Denver Broncos get blown out in a Super Bowl or something like that. I actually <laughs> – I legitimately had an emotional fan reaction to Roglic getting beaten and I – I didn't know I wanted him to win, but I wanted him to win, and he did not. He got blown out of the water, and I felt so bad for the guy when he's sitting up there at the top of the hill, and Wood Van Aert and Tom Dumoulin are there sort of patting him on the back, and he just has this look on his face like, oh my gosh, what the heck just happened to me? This stunned look of disbelief. So, I mean, I guess the question I have for you, Hoodie, like, and I've seen this argued online, was like, did did Pogaccio win this or did Roglic lose it? Yeah, I think that you could say uh, – I, I think obviously uh, Pogaccio uh, obviously won this – won that race, won the entire tour in one, in one hour really. Yeah. Uh, when you look at uh, how much and how Jumbo Visma completely dominated this tour from start to finish. I mean they were just doing everything textbook. Um, you know, they totally eliminated Bernal and Ineos, you know, made them a non-factor in the race by not even the halfway point. Uh, it was interesting talking to Sepp Kuss the other day. And I said, hey, you know, how did it feel to eliminate Bernal, you know, on that, uh, you know, Puch-Marie and then uh, Puch-Marie and then they uh, got rid of him in the Grand Colombier and going into that third week. And he goes, oh, no, we already knew in the Pyrenees the most dangerous rider was Pogacar, Pogacar. 
And, uh, you know, that's just how much confidence they had in their ability to control and then eliminate Bernal and just completely, you know, people have forgotten really that, you know, Enios came in as the super team. They won seven of the last eight tours and they just got completely uh, steamrolled in this whole tour. Uh, and then here comes Pogat uh, Pogacar, who really, you know, kind of reconfirms the notion that one superior rider is still capable of winning the tour against uh, these super teams. And for me, I think it's it's just such a great tour in that sense because you know we're seeing these super teams. You know, it goes back to the days of even the '80s. You, know, you get these big teams with a lot of money and the big stars. You know, just dominate the tour for six, five, six, seven, eight years. Really, kind of sucks a lot of the drama and the fun out of the Grand Tours, at least out of out of the uh, Tour de France, because that's why. The last several years, you know, it's been wow, man. The Giro and the and the Vuelta have been so fun and exciting to watch because they haven't been steam steamrolled by these by these uh, mega teams. And that's the way. It's something I thought. Well, gee, you know, the long did the king is dead. Long live the king in the sense of like you know, Ineos is gone now. Here comes Jumbo Visma with basically the same blueprint, just doing the same thing with a different rider. And then just to have it turn upside down like that was so incredible. It's just, I mean, to me watching it. Uh, I turn. I never. I never take sides. As you know, I'm much more of a of an old grumpy old journalist than you are, Fred. I I don't. I never take favorites, man. I don't care. I mean, maybe if Sepp was winning, you know, I'd lose it there. I mean, if Sepp's going up that climb, you know, chasing in the yellow jersey, I'd start cheering a little bit because we all love Sepp here at Velo News. But but uh, you know, I, I just try to watch it just as 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 the amazing spectacle that it was, and and it was just you know just breathtaking. So for me to answer your question, he won this tour. In one hour, whereas uh, Yumbo Visma, you know, do you lose it? I, I was surprised at how much Roglic did lose it. He was clearly on a very bad day because, you know, we see so many times in these climbing stages, even when you're on a bad day, you don't lose more than 20 or 30 seconds. So for him to lose two minutes to Pavacat on that, on that 6K, well, he had lost some time before hitting the climb. So, you know, you can't say he lost two minutes just on that one climb, but it was clearly obvious that that Roglic was not on his best day. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Pogaccia won this. Um, I've been I've been thinking about it a bit since then too. And initially, I was like, "Wow, Roglic just blew this." You know, he had the strongest team. He had this 57 second gap. You know, the ride. He was fifth place. He was behind guys that he's been ahead of. You know, man, he blew it. But you know, honestly. I think he I think you say he blew it if he loses the Tour de France by like 10 seconds overall. But it was a, you know, he got blown out of the water 2 minutes. Um and and when you look at that, you start to say, okay, well, the guy who won it was so obviously stronger than him on this crucial stage that everyone has known is coming. And then you can kind of go back in time and say, well, where has this gap that Roglic had come from? And it's like, well, like, a lot of it came from bonus seconds, and some of it came from clawing out these little gaps on the tops of these climbs and crosswinds and here and there. And when you start to reverse engineer it like that, you're like, wait a second. Well, maybe Pogacar is like the strongest rider by actually a wide margin. Yeah, he doesn't have the strongest team, but he's a smart racer, and he's obviously has the had the legs and everything to back it up. So um, – I think I've come around to it. Pagacha won this. He was the strongest rider. He was the best rider. He was exciting. He won three stages. Some people are saying that uh, that Roglic blew it. Some people are actually saying that. Well, no. I mean, whenever you see, whenever you see a quote unquote collapse like this, I think it's a natural question to be like, wait a second, like, did somebody just did? did the, you know, it's like I, I was I was thinking back to some of the other sports collapses. You know, Golden State Warriors up 3-1 to one to the Cleveland Cavaliers, Greg Norman at the Masters, some of these big reversals that happen. Yeah. Simon Yates to the Giro. And, and some of these you can look at and say like, you know, this person, they just lost focus. Like, they got the yips. They got, you know, they got Steve Sachs disease and just like completely exploded and had a mental fart and pissed the whole thing away. But I don't think you can actually say that with Roglic. I think that, okay, he didn't have his best day. But I think even if he has his best day yesterday, I don't know if he's making up them two minutes. You know? Yeah, I think I think two things happened yesterday. That Roglic had a very bad day, and Pogacar had one of those just uh, amazing days that you see cyclists just pull out of their hats every once in a while. Because um, I really thought that um, 
Pagarcha had cracked a little bit in the Alps. I thought his, I thought he had cooked himself, you know, because he, he he did lose, you know, one twenty, one twenty or whatever it was in the crosswind stage before the Pyrenees. So when he started attacking like a banshee, uh, in the Pyrenees, I mean, the mistake he could say that they did make was to let him take back that time in the first Pyrenean stage. Uh, even though Roglic did mark him a few times, he did Pagarcha uh, did get away and got clawed back. I think twenty seconds that day. Um, because then from then on, they really did ride together the rest of the race. And, um, and in the end, actually, the, the time bonuses were not a factor. I think Roglic had 33 and Pagacha had 32. So in the end, it all kind of balanced out with the stages they wanted their different time bonuses. But it seemed like to me, though, that I had the feeling that, that Roglic had kind of broken Pagacha's back because he, you know, he dropped him at the Col de Lillos. And that was really the day that that Pogaccio needed to kind of take the initiative back, and you know he lost. It really wasn't that much time; it was 15 seconds. So it just shows you how strong both of them are. But I, I just thought that day was like okay, you know. Then the next day wasn't really ideal for attacking, and you could see just Pogaccio kind of just hanging in there, hanging in there. And uh, I just thought that uh, well, in fact, Pogaccio said it himself. He goes when, when he woke up. Saturday morning for that time trial, he says, you know, I was, I was happy with second place. I was happy with second place. He had, he had no, I don't really think he expected to win the tour on that time trial. It wasn't like some secret plan they attached or, you know, something that they had like the secret, uh, pacing schedule for that time trial. You can tell, like you just said, he didn't ride with a power meter or, uh, uh, he was listening to the race radio. You could see that video they posted. It was actually quite good of uh, Alan Piper, you know, telling him to keep going. I just think the guy, you know, he's a 21 year old guy. He's got nothing to lose. And I think basically they just said, look, you won't lose the podium. Cause you know, he was so far ahead of Richie Ford and, and Lopez. Like just, just go and just see what happens. Cause even if, even if you blow up, you can still kind of pull it back together and, and save the second place. So I think it was kind of a combination of a lot of those factors. It was a YOLO ride. I'm sure lots of cyclists out there have done that on like your favorite climb where you're like, I'm just going to go for broke, man. I'm just going to go as hard as I can, see how far I make it before I have to get off my bicycle. And uh, Tade Pogacha made it 36 kilometers. Well, chapeau to him. And the other thing to think about is that, I mean, we've seen weirdness in the final Tour de France uh, time trial before. You know, we've seen... Um, amazing performances, bad performances, riders pull rabbits out of their hats. I'm, I'm, I'm remembering um, Carlos Sastra 2008. You know, everyone knew it was going to be close with Cadell Evans, but Sastra had just the time trial of his life and it actually wasn't that close by the end. I think he still won the overall by a minute. And then the next year, I remember um, that time trial in Annecy and Contador wins the time trial outright beating Fabian Cancellara. And it's like, wow, you know, those are two time trials that come to mind of like, hey, three weeks of racing is in everyone's legs. People have different motivations, different inspirations. And like, you know, these guys are amazing athletes, but sometimes you just don't know how the body is going to respond in, a you know, something as unpredictable as a time trial like this. And, you know, again, test, you know, kudos to ASO for designing a Tour de France route that did exactly what it's they wanted to do, which was, hey, you know, we want to make this hard for Ineos. We want to keep the margins tight and we want to bottle up the, you know, who's the who's going to win, who's going to get second place all the way to the final day. And um, that's exactly what happened. So, you know, I know that I know that ASO's best attempts to like tame Team Sky and Ineos with course designs over the last few years has really come up short. But this one, at the very least, um, made it so that the strongest team couldn't just snuff the life out of the race. Yeah, yeah I agree with you on the, on the course design this year. You know, I, I kind of thought that it was going to be, you know, coming out of the Pyrenees. I just, I kind of thought the Pyrenees were a little bit flat, or ex I was expecting them to be a little bit flat. And then, you know, it was really thanks to Pagarcha. I mean, he was the only guy that had the legs to really attack in this entire tour. Because you look at uh, the rest of the of, of what happened in the Pyrenees and even through the Massif Central, you know, everyone was just – they were just hanging on. I mean, Yumbo was just steamrolling everybody. So I think if it wasn't for uh, one rider, and if it wasn't for Tadej Pogacar, I think this tour would have been pretty predictable, I think. So kudos to Tadej for really giving us something quite special. Um, you know, he, we just watched the final podium and, you know, he was, he was just saying, I have no words to describe my feelings right now. And, uh, that's what we're trying to do, Fred. We're trying to put words into Tade's mouth. You know, how does he feel right now? But I want, I want, 
Yeah. What would you say? What would you say, Fred? I'd do like I Gary Thomas and drop the mic and just be like, yeah, that's right. I'm Mr. Cool. Uh, mic drop. <laughs> yeah, I, that, was, that was a good one. That was a good one. Um, but I, 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 want, I want to make this point, though, about what makes uh, the tour and any Grand Tour so interesting. And it's always that third week. It's always those last bone-crushing stages. And that's why you know I like this tendency. You know, We used to have tours that the last mountain stage would be on a Wednesday. And then you'd have a couple of transition stages and a big, long, flat time trial and then the parade into Paris. And that really was boring. So, you know, kudos to the chorus designers for, you know, packing in some real difficult stages going into the last several – even this year, the last Alpine stage was Thursday. But uh, but just by having that uh, time trial on Saturday, the climbing time trial really made a big difference. But it really is that third week of a Grand Tour that really breaks the the, the back of uh, – maybe I can say that in a more happier way. But a way, you know, to really crack the morale and crack the legs and spirit – in a grand tour it's only then that you see the big time differences like Rigoberto around was saying the other day it's like the level is so high across the peloton everyone's training the same everyone has on the same best bikes they're all in the aero kits they're all eating the same foods they're all doing the same things so you're going to have the the best cyclists in the world are going to be after two weeks basically on the same time. And that's basically how this tour was playing out. It wasn't until the third week that you start to see the fatigue setting in. You start to see those miles and the legs starting to add up. And you start seeing the cracks. And you start seeing who really has the legs to win. And that's what makes a Grand Tour so special. I mean, the best best finishes have been these kind of collapses. I mean, for me, you know, everyone criticizes, you know, some people are convinced that, uh, you know, Chris Froome was doped or he had a motor in his bike. I don't agree with any of that. And, the, and that Giro that he won a few years ago, you know, he, who was he was racing against, uh, uh, you know, racing against uh, uh, Simon Yates, you know, first time in that situation, just completely cracked in the third week. I mean, he just fell apart. And then you had Tom Dumoulin completely isolated, and it was just the mano mano fight. And that's what we kind of saw at the end of this tour. It was really, and there's no one really there. Uh, Roglic is the only guy that had a teammate, and that was Sepkus, and the rest were just isolated. And that's where you get these great, exciting, thrilling moments in Grand Tour racing. That's what makes the Grand Tour so interesting. That's why they hold them uh, for three weeks. Well, hey, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the historical significance. We're going to talk COVID and media and uh, some other just ah, some other tough moments and thrilling moments in cycling. So we'll be right back. You heard me talk about MitoQ at the top of the show. Many of us have heard of supplementing our training with the antioxidant CoQ10 for energy and recovery. MitoQ is a unique form of CoQ10 engineered to get inside the mitochondria in our cells to help create cellular energy and neutralize free radicals. MitoQ helps improve recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, and stress, all of which will help you train better and be healthier. To learn more about the unique formula, to read some independent clinical trials, and read some athlete testimonials, go to www.mitoq.com forward slash power up cycling. Again, www.mitoq.com forward slash power up cycling. Okay, back to the podcast. Okay, we're back. Andrew Hood, uh, you know, I can't, I can't stop thinking about Roglic here. And again, like, you know, you said, you're like, hey, I'm impartial. I don't have fan interest. I kind of felt like I was impartial and didn't have a fan interest in this race until poor Roglic started taking on water. And for some reason, I just like I, I had an an unpredictable emotional reaction to that where I was just like, oh, man, I, you know, bummer. I, I really wanted that guy to win. Um, it, it brought up some memories of him at the Giro uh, last year where he looked so bulletproof through the first half of that race and then really took on water at the end. And, you know, it kind of felt like, well, he had learned the lessons from that race at the Welta where he was really in control and rode this very controlled race all the way to the end. What's next for Jumbo Visma and Roglic? I mean, they have this guy who seems to be almost there, but then there's this other guy in the Peloton who just seems to be that much better. I mean, from a team perspective, you couldn't have raced a more perfect tour but is Roglic the guy to finish it off? Oh uh, yeah, for sure. You don't you don't change anything in Yumbo. I mean, they just got they just had their bad day when Pagata had his a great day. 
had that had had those two things happen on different days, Roglic still would have been the winner of this tour. So I think they don't change anything. Um, you have Roglic, you have Dumoulin, who finished seventh in a domestique role. And I think Big Tom is going to be back next year at his full splendor. Uh, he's racing the welter this year. We'll see what he can do. But I think you got Dumoulin, you got Roglic, you have uh, Kreisrick, cruise ship, cruise ship as he's often called. I think you call him that. Um, so these three big riders, this team is built up to where it is. I mean, come on, Roglic, third in the Giro, won the welter, second in the Tour. I mean, that's a pretty solid record you're not gonna like say oh this guy's a hack we're gonna swap him out for somebody else no he's your man you stick with him and i mean they came as close as you can come to to the tour so i think this will you know i think this will be a test for that organization that team but i think they will come out stronger um i think that they'll tweak out i mean they'll, they'll be studying what happens you know maybe maybe he got sick maybe he didn't eat right you know who knows what happens between you know, that Friday stage going into Saturday, they have all these things very detailed. So they'll be going through exactly what happened in that process and try to figure out what happened to Roglic on that time trial. Um, but I think uh, I think it's going to be a clash next year. You know, you got Ineos, who's going to be back stronger than ever. You're going to have Bernal. You have the teams bringing on some heavy hitters. I mean, they're signing Richie Port. He's going to be a super domestic next year. Um, and then you have uh, Pogacar. And then, uh, you know, every other team is still fighting. But you have those three big teams now, of course, with the assumption that uh, UAE Emirates is going to get even stronger next year and build a team around uh, Pogacar. Because they came in, you know, they came in, they had their two of the best climbers were out of the race in the first 10 days. Uh, Formolo and Aru were both gone. And they lost another rider the other day, I think. So they came in with uh, six, maybe five riders into Paris. And they even had uh, your man Christoph there, you know, Unique about this tour this year, you had Christoph wore the yellow jersey for one day on the first day, and Pogacar wore it one day on the last day. So that was a pretty unique little twist there for that team. So I think we're going to have this great future of uh, Grand Tour racing. And then, of course, you know, if the French come back, you got Pino, who had a disastrous tour. Um, you know, Bardet is going to Sunweb next year. They had a great tour this year, that team. So I think it's going to be the interesting. I like it. Optimism there. Um, you know, there was a lot of historical chatter after this uh, result on Planche de Belfi and a lot of comparison to 1989, Greg LeMond overtaking Laura Fignon on the Champs-Élysées final time trial. Um, I think I, I had to splash some water on myself after the time trial, and I think I've come down from my perch because I was all ready to anoint this year as being better than 1989. Oh, this is even better than what happened in 1989. You know, we have our big comeback and our, you know, our dramatic final real day of racing on the tour comeback. I think, I think I'm gonna come down off of that, splash some some cold water on myself, and say, hey, you know, they're both great. No, no, this is this generation's answer to the Le Mans Fignon uh, comeback. And leave it at that. We don't have to compete. We don't have to have a a better and best um, when it comes to everything. So let's just say they're both great moments. This is our generation's great moment. But you know, something about Fignon in that is that you know he never he never won the tour again, and that that missed win in some circles came to define who he was. I mean, in French cycling circles, he's obviously a two three time tour champion, two time tour champion. And uh, won the Giro and a bunch of other big races. But if you ask any American cycling fan, hey, what do you know about Laurent Fignon? And it's like, oh, that's the guy that Le Mans beat, you know, by eight seconds. Ha ha. And I guess my fear is I hope that I hope that this loss does not come to define Primoz Roglic within the cycling space. I hope to God that he wins um, the Tour de France so that like he can overcome something like this and his legacy can be more than the guy who really looked like he was going to win the 2020 tour. And then on the final day of racing, it didn't go his way. Yeah. Yeah. You'd hope so. I think, I think probably this would be a little easier to swallow perhaps for Roglic than it was for Fignon. I mean, eight seconds, that that's a tough one. Uh, you know, you're looking at almost a minute to a Pogaccia. So I don't know. I, I can't imagine that Roglic is going to be haunted by that in such a way that it's going to mark and scar him for the rest of his life. I think it depends on really how the people around him really support him. So I think it's important that if his team is really built around him, that the team will kind of give him that support 
and that morale to kind of rebuild and, and not let this kind of be that that uh, something that's going to just haunt him for the rest of his career. I do remember one year, this was years ago, um, I think it was the last year Motorola uh, was in the tour. This is my, I think my first tour. And they had like this big, uh, you know, kind of rest day event, big barbecue and, you know, free beer and food and burgers. And, and it was kind of everyone showed up to this thing. And they had was like a, a had a big movie video um, kind of highlighting all the all the Motorola years. But for some reason, this, this image came up of Lamont, you know, beating uh, Fignon and, you know, and all the Americans are there. Like, yeah, yeah. Lamont. And who was standing right next to me was Laurent Fignon was just standing right next to me. I looked over at him and he was just ice, man, just looked straight ahead, didn't flinch, didn't say anything. But man, that guy was like, because he, like you said, it probably just haunted that guy for the rest of his life. Like Bill Buckner, like Bill Buckner, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing about these dramatic sports moments in some of these, you know, perceived to be meltdown scenarios where, you know, Greg Norman, you know, Greg Norman at the Masters and some of these like tennis matches where a guy has a huge lead and, and it just doesn't happen or Bill Buckner. And for for better or for worse, for right or wrong, that moment in time comes to define them. And I just really hope that that's not the case with Roglic. That's why I, I'm pulling for the guy to win the Tour de France. Um, Andy, you mentioned it before there, you know, with the, the way that La Planche, La Planche de Belfi was held or media, you know, you're not even allowed up there. You're in a tent 10K away watching the thing on TV. Um, and we've chatted before about what the media infrastructure was like at the 2020 tour due to COVID. And I think it goes without saying that, look, as members of the media, we're, we totally understand the rules and are happy to abide by them. And, um, you know, it's stuff like social distancing and, you know, mix zones and paddocks where people are kept far away and masks and stuff like that are, are for the greater good. And we're very happy to abide by them. But um, I saw some comments actually in a Velo News story from one of the team PR guys saying that, you know, we kind of prefer the media format of 2020 to the way it has been, where it's chaos and there's reporters roaming around and asking riders questions and waiting outside the team bus and talking to team officials and stuff like that. And, you know, they really preferred the fact that, like, the team PR guy goes and does the interview with the rider afterwards and then sends that audio file via WhatsApp to 100 journalists or 1,000 journalists all over the globe. And the stories that are written are based off of those comments. And look, full disclosure, we were one of those media outlets as well. You know, like we got some access in the media zone with you, but a lot of the stories that you read on VeloNews.com over the last three weeks have been from these quotes supplied to us via, you know, text thread or audio message from the team PR person because that was the only access we got. And I think it's, you know, a, a question I have for you is what did you feel like, where did you feel like the most was lost with the um, the, the media format uh, around this year with, you know, lack of access and all the quotes being sent out to everyone? Um, where do you feel like the information flow just wasn't at the same level. Yeah, it's an interesting point. It really, it really was a dramatic change to how the media works. I think to actually how the the tour is viewed by just the fans, because the and actually the actual product of how you know seeing the race didn't change at all, because you know it's still just all via TV. Um, but the fact that the media really was just kept at arm's length at everything. You know, we, we were doing, you know, we were doing telephone interviews with some people and trying to get some extra access that way. But, but, um, you know, you really missed out so much of getting into the tactics, getting into the reasons why things happened. Um, you know, had the normal media access been there Saturday, all the questions would be to Yumbo, you know, what happened? How did this happen? What was just you know what what happened in the last several days that might have led to uh, Roglic's collapse on this time trial, and you miss also like uh you know those interviews you can do like who is Tade Pagacar, you know when you when you want to create a story about this guy, we don't know really that much about him. We've all done little bits of reporting about him, um, but during the, during the course of a race, that's the time you can talk to the Swaniers. Hey, tell me a funny story about Tade Pagacar. Or talk to uh, one of the sport directors and get the backstory on the guy. Get these little details that really bring alive these characters. And they are so lively and interesting. Almost all these guys have these great stories. It, it, any any cyclist does. And so you miss out on all that kind of stuff. And you miss out 
on having the ability to talk to writers for more than just, you know, literally it was just a few minutes sometimes. Um, sometimes you just can't get that much out. Even though certain writers you could really have a nice chat with, you know, we were talking to uh, Nielsen Paulus a few times during this tour. Very, you know, it was very expressive, very open. Same with Nicholas Roche, uh, Tom Squeens, you know, all these guys that can express themselves well in this kind of format, it wasn't that bad. You know, you get George Bennett, he's always going to say something interesting. But it was just getting a lot of that backstory, especially talking to the sport directors. It's so interesting talking to the sport directors. You often get more of those things about, you know, why did something happen in a race? You know, why was this team pulling? Or, you know, what's the strategic plan? You know, what can you do to try to tamp down Pogacar? You know, that's the question you'd be asking, you know, Jumbo Visma right in the Pyrenees. Um, so I think that this tour was really, uh, you know, I, I, I honestly hope that it's not like this going forward because it really felt like the Olympics. You know, you, you've been in the Olympics forever. Where it's all, you know, mix zones and everything's, you know, separated and there's no really, a, you know, everything's in press conferences. There's no real chance to really have a chat with anybody. And that's what I think really makes uh, cycling more unique among the major sports in Europe or, you know, at the world level because of that access. Um, we have already been told uh, the AIJC, which is the uh, International uh, Cycling Journalists Association, has been assured by uh, the tour officials that next year, health conditions allowing, the paddock area will be open again. So that means we'll be able to get in there and stick our noses around and like bug these guys. I did say I did read a quote from uh, Richie Port as well. He was saying how he really enjoyed this year's Tour de France because he didn't have all these journalists ask him all these stupid questions all the time. So you know, some uh, I could I could actually understand. A lot of the sport directors were telling me uh, on the QT, it's like, hey man, this is great. You know, we don't have because normally you know the, the sport director comes out of the bus. And they just, you know, they get guys like me and you going, hey, why'd you do that yesterday? You know, all these <laughs> stupid questions. But, you know, that's how the information gets out. It's, and then also this year, Stuart, uh, there were no VIPs coming in, like a lot of the teams bringing in VIPs to their, uh, you know, through their sponsors. And this is all kind of on the QT. People were saying, oh, man, it was like, what? This was like, this was the most relaxed Tour de France ever. Uh, in that regard, in terms of just because the crush of the tour is what really can crack uh, people. Everyone always says, you know, why is the tour different? Everyone's like, oh, man, it's just you're just barraged constantly by fans, by VIPs, by sponsors, by journalists, by TV cameras. And they said this year's tour was the best they've ever been to. Well, and that's the whole thing is that at the team bus or wherever, you know, at a normal race, there might be 10 or 12 of us. And at the tour, there's 50 of us. Um I think that, yeah, you know, I can understand where a Richie Port or someone would be would would feel like the media rules were a huge improvement because I've been on, you know, I, I was on some of these WhatsApp messages too, and I've been on them in the past where they send the quote around, and it's basically the guy getting asked the same three questions by like nine different journalists, and so they have their canned response, and they're, oh, yeah, well, I'm really disappointed. Maybe if I would have gone harder, yada yada yada. Okay, and you hear these three or four questions asked the same over and over again. And and those tend to be post-race press conferences and there are post-race interviews. And it's a lot of like TV and um, radio people because the sound bite is actually really important. Um, but it's just, it's different for quote unquote print or digital people like you and me because yeah, okay, there's the interviews that you're going to be doing at a bus where there's 25 other people around and we're asking very specific questions about the day or the reaction. And those tend to be like little mini press conferences because, you know, it's a high pressure environment. The rider doesn't want to say anything that's going to get him in trouble. It's just a more controlled environment. But really to me, what's lost is like when you have a personal relationship with someone on a team, maybe it's a sport director, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a domestique or someone that like, you know, if, if it's like you, you've been doing this for, you know, decades or even me and I've been doing it for 15 years. And so you, you make these personal relationships and you know, people in the sport and during a normal year, you see those people at the bus and maybe no one's talking to them at all. And maybe you don't even get out your tape recorder and you just start talking to them and you have a previous relationship. Maybe you've done a story with them. And, you know, through that conversation, so much interesting information filters out that helps journalists like us understand 
what the heck is going on in the race, who these people are, what the tactics are, who's getting tired, what people are trying out, what it's like inside the Peloton, so many of these different things that we end up writing about. And this year, without that access and without the ability to have those conversations, you know, you can go back and, and look at the content. And look, I was very happy with our coverage in VeloNews.com. But I think if you looked at a lot of the sites, you know, you started to see sort of the same thing, which was like, rider name colon reaction. And it was like, it was, it was like a quote based um, media economy as opposed to an information based economy where the information is coming to us via the good old fashioned, you know, gumshoe reporting tech te uh, techniques that like all good reporters do, which is like creating relationships, you know, talking to people. Yeah. Okay. Being nosy and asking tough questions and like, you know, maybe asking a, a question that you're just asking because you want to get a reaction out of someone and you want to see what that reaction is. But a lot of times it's like, it's a little bit more subtle than that. Yeah. And also we, uh, with, with the journalists, uh, we miss just kind of putting people not on the spot, but getting them on the record. Um, you know, journalist asked Roglic, can we believe you? Uh, journalist asked Roglic, are you still using ketones? Um, these are questions that don't come up when the team PR guy is, is asking how the stage went, right? And, and the other thing that was a, a big change this year where all the rest day press conferences were on Zoom. And, uh, you know, in some ways it was actually much easier because we'd still, we could still ask her question. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a digital conversation on Zoom. You know, it's the, it's, everyone's using that now with the lockdown. Um, so we could, you know, they had the had the interviews on Zoom, and we could still ask the questions, and some good questions were being asked. Uh, so, in that, you know, the thing is, we didn't have to drive around to five different hotels to get to get to those press conferences. But after that happened, the first and second rest days, kind of reflected on some of the some of the best journalistic moments have come out of these rest days. Because that's when you get some of these great zingers from writers or sport directors and team managers. You, sometimes they, they're quite confrontational sometimes. You know, some of these great uh, kind of showdowns in the media have always come on the rest day press conferences. You know, everyone goes to the team hotel. Uh, it's usually just completely random wherever the team hotel is. It's either in the hotel lobby. Sometimes it's back by the pool. I remember one year when uh, Kid L. Evans was on Team Lotto. This was years ago before he even won the tour. I think Cadell was actually in yellow and it eventually lost him. It was the year to Sastre. But uh, I remember, you know, Cadell has his little table set up. They had like a little table kind of – it was like at the edge of the pool area. Little table was set up and they had Cadell – you know, he, has, he, has, he was actually hugging the little bear, uh, the, little, the little lion thing, you know. And he had his green – he had his uh, yellow jersey and his little hat on and Cadell's there taking questions. And in the background – you know, all the sponsors like Lotto, Sudal, they just had this heaving party going on. It was like they were all just getting completely smashed. And we're all trying to interview Cadell and no one could even hear what Cadell was saying. And also, uh, you know, just a couple of years ago where, you know, where Brailsford calls uh, La Partiente, uh, you know, a small town, little French small town mayor. You know, some of that kind of stuff, you're just not getting when the PR guy's asking the questions. No, and that's that's real. Like, Brailsford feels that way, you know? Yeah, okay, maybe it's not the best thing to say for the media health, for the press guy or the media health of the team. And yeah, it's going to cause a firestorm. But like, you do get these very real reactions. I remember uh, two years ago at the Garrett Thomas tour, we went to their press day and it was at some EBIS and it was just pandemonium and everything. And, you know, the press conference was what it was. Nobody was saying particularly that much. But you and I hung out in the lobby for an hour or two afterwards. And that's where I met Garrett Thomas's wife, Sarah, and chatted her up and created, I don't know, enough of a recognition so that two days later when I saw her at the team bus and she recognized me and I, you know, I had told her that day, like, look, I really want to write like a mini profile of Garrett Thomas, get some stories about him, you know, get some get some stories from the people who know him best about what makes him tick, how he handles pressure, funny stories, this, that, and the other. And she was great. She was very lovely. And two days later, she recognized me, you know, hey, let's let's do the chat. And she told me some some funny Garrett stories about back home in Wales and, you know, drinking beer and cheering for the rugby team. And like, that's the type of stuff that helps a person come alive. And I feel like that's still kind of some of the information that we have yet to get about Pogacar and even Roglic, we've spoken to his teammates about, oh, poor Roglic. I mean, he's like so wooden in front of the microphones and so 
just gives you nothing. But, you know, we've heard from teammates saying that he's this very lovely, funny guy and charismatic and behind the scenes is, you know, tells jokes and is kind of Mr. Personality. So it's so strange. It's like you hear those stories from the Sepkus or someone and then the Roglic that we get in front of the TV cameras is just like, yes, he's good. Legs were good. Team very happy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's like, and it's like that is there's that's a, another example where it's just like so much of a gap between um, when there's no media access, what you know people's perception of a person ends up being versus you know if there is media access. I will say the other day, Kiwakowski gave this very moving press conference when uh, when he won that stage into. Um, help me out here. La Roche sur Furon. Uh, yeah, over the uh, plateau. And just moving press conference talking about uh, his memories of Nico Portal. And so it depends on who's doing the talking as well. Uh, and plus, I'll, I'll, you know, they, they let Kiwakowski run on. Uh, another thing that was very frustrating this year's tour was they, you know, they're like going, oh, three questions. It's like, come on, man. It's, you give us three questions. You know, so so the one Yahoo goes, how was the stage today? The other guy goes, what do you expect for tomorrow? And the other guy goes, you know, uh, what's your favorite color? And you're just sitting there going, you know, this this is not this is not uh, this is not going to produce good good content for our readers. <laughs> no, no. So I think we're all hoping and praying that we soon live in a world where COVID nineteen is um, not the threat it's at now. And if that does I, happen, I have. I have to add one more thing about the media yeah. before we change subjects. Uh, the press buffet. Okay. The Wait, is, part, now, we're part of every, now we're getting to the good stuff. Important part of every tour de France. Started out very poor. It was like we were just thinking this is going to be a disaster tour. But as the tour rolled along, once we got out of uh, kind of the south there, out of the, out of the Riviera, into the got back to the kind of the roots of France, and they just started rolling out these great press buffets. I mean, they were like, this year is one of the best press buffets we've had in years. Just some great, uh, big kind of local paella style uh, nets, and they had a big burger fest one day. Another place had oysters on a half shell, so they kind of rolled it out for the journalists who were there. We were we could not complain about the press buffet this year. Just solid um, three weeks of organs and kidneys and uh, stomachs and gizzards. Chair salad and couscous. Yeah. There were there were a few days of that. There were a few days of that. <laughs> Uh, we take the gizzard and we soak it in gasoline. <laughs> uh, well, Hood, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Um, I appreciate all of the Vela News podcast listeners and all the readers on VelaNews.com, all of our Active Pass and Vela News Pass members. Thank you so much for being along for the ride with us over the last three weeks. It has been fun. It has been a challenge. Um, and we all hope it goes back to the way it was Last question for you, Andy. I mean, what will be for you the lasting image of the 2020 Tour de France? The lasting image of the 2020 Tour de France, I will say, uh, it has to be the has to be the bike stab Pogaccia at the top of the time trail. Yeah. And he, that, that's how bad he, you know, he could have popped a wheelie. He was going, he was so far ahead, but you know, he was just all in, and that bike step for me said everything. I love it. Well, stay tuned to the Velo News podcast. We will be coming. Back to you in a week on our normal Wednesday published date. But for Andrew Hood, it's Fred Dreyer. It has been a wild ride. And we will see you, well, we will hear from you in a week and a half. Thank you. Thank you.